Bless the Lord this morning. Let's get our Bibles out as the children are being dismissed to go to their classrooms. Wow, you guys look good today. Let's get our Bibles out. Matthew 12. We've been in Matthew for a couple weeks. I'm preaching through chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12 is just chock full of so many messages, miracles, healings, messianic prophecies fulfilled, Jesus' mission defined. Such a powerful chapter. I'm glad that the Holy Spirit's allowed us to camp out here a little bit. But open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. Today we're going to cover verses 15 through 21. I'm going to thank God for the word and then I'm going to read it to you. Father, we thank you for the word today. And Father, we pray that our worship was pleasing in your sight and that our hearts are prepared for the word this morning. Father, prepare our minds that we could bring in the word. But Father, don't let it stay in our heads. Let it get to our hearts so that the word can change us from the inside out. Father, we pray that we would hear your truth this morning. Holy Spirit, you'd illuminate the mysteries that have been tucked into your word for those who seek you with their whole hearts. Father, we thank you this morning that we're going to leave here changed by the power of the written word. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 12, starting in verse 15. And remember, Jesus had just tangled with the Pharisees. Two, he did two rounds with them. They were fighting over the fact that he ate grain in the field. His disciples were accused of being lawbreakers. Then he heals a man, and they want to they want to trap him with the fact that they don't think you should do healing on the Sabbath. And uh, verse fourteen, they decided to withdraw themselves from Jesus and to plot to kill him. We pick up with Jesus in verse fifteen. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. I love that. Yet he warned them not to make him known, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. Listen to verse 18. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Mm. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoking flax he will not quench till he sends forth justice to victory and his name, in his name, the Gentiles will trust. Let's stop there. Such a powerful section of Matthew 12. We start off here with the fact that, as I alluded to, uh, Jesus had tangled with the Pharisees and they had two rounds here. It's Jesus, two Pharisees, nothing. They accused the, his disciples of being lawbreakers. What was their crime? They did the back-breaking work of eating on the Sabbath. They took some grain, they shucked it in the field, they ate it, and they're like, your disciples are lawbreakers. Then, as if that wasn't enough, they follow him out of the grain fields, and they set him up in the synagogue. They bring a man in front of him with a withered hand, and they say, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, knowing that Jesus full of compassion and the healing virtue of God, would be compelled to heal this man. They tried to set him up. Jesus bests them, and he quotes from Old Testament, gives them examples. He leaves his accusers silent, and he heals the man with the withered hand. Now, after these two exchanges, uh, the, the religious power brokers you know, are angry. They're upset. They withdraw. They're plotting to kill Jesus, and we pick up in verse 15. It shows 
Jesus making a retreat. Now, this is interesting. We said that Jesus never shrinks back. He doesn't run away from those who would accuse him or try to debate him. But at this point, we see him withdrawing himself, and we're going to talk about that. It said, but Jesus knew. Say knew. Jesus knew what was going on. He knew it. What? That they were plotting to kill him. He had enough of them. And he withdrew from there, and a great multitude followed him and healed them. Let's talk about this today. Jesus is making a tactical retreat. Why? Two reasons. Number one, he knew the evil intentions of his adversaries. Discernment is a very important thing. I said this in first service. Christians need to have discernment, especially now. And I want to say something to you, fasten your seatbelts, there are too many Christian dummies that have no discernment. You say, Pastor, you shouldn't say that. I just said it. We need to smarten up. We need to wise up. We need to have a biblical worldview, not a carnal worldly worldview, amen? Too many Christians have no idea what's going on in the earth. What's going on in our nation? What's going on with biblical prophecy and the return of Jesus Christ? We're just kind of muddling around in the dark, and it's no wonder that the world is confused and lost. Why? Because the church needs to get it together and have discernment to know that the word of God is coming to pass right in our sight. <laughs> God's not in heaven calling an emergency meeting. Everything's going out of control. Everything's falling out. It's all falling into place. But you and I many times don't have the discernment, and, and we're confused, and because we're confused, we confuse others. Jesus makes a retreat here because he discerns exactly what his adversaries are up to. Now, I understand, you know, you say, Pastor, I'm, I'm not Jesus. I'm not Jesus either. And we're never going to have the level of discernment that he has. He's omniscient, amen. He's all-knowing. He's God. But we have the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwelling in us. We have the gifts of the Spirit, which include discernment. There's no excuse for us to not know what God wants us to know in the hour that we're living in the earth. Come on. Come on this morning. Come on. Say out your amen or ouch men. Nice. Is that Greek, Pastor Mike? So we've got to have discernment. It's vital. I want to say something. Spiritually deaf Christians walk into a lot of ambushes. Spiritually dense Christians walk into a lot of ambushes. Some of us, the enemy has set us up the same way time after time for decades, and we haven't figured out how not to walk into it. It's time to cultivate some discernment. It's time to turn the TV off and the radio off and the computer off and put your phone somewhere in a snowbank and get alone and listen to God. I got no amens on the phone in the snowbank. Man, those things are robbing us of our communion with God. They have their place, but we need to put them in their place. So Jesus had discernment. That's why he makes a retreat. Number two, Jesus knew the perfect will of his father. He, he was on a mission from heaven. You know what? You say, well, yeah, of course, Jesus came in the cross and the resurrection. We get it. But you and I have a mission too. Well, let me try that over here on this side. Jesus knew his mission, and you and I have a mission too. God didn't save us to walk around in circles, to muddle around in the darkness, to try and figure out what's going on, to circle the wagons till Jesus returned. He has sent each of us on a mission to do something important. 
Now, we need to get a sense of what our mission is. You say, well, Pastor, we know your mission is to get up here and, you know, talk too much every Sunday. And, you know, uh, that, that, yeah, we get what you know. But each of us have something to do. And we've got to be about the Father's business. We've got to be doing what we were sent to do. Jesus knew what he was here to do. He knew what his mission was. He came to seek and to save the lost. Someone say amen. He came to destroy the works of darkness. He came to shatter the dominion of sin that was over mankind. He did not come to win debates and to argue with these self-aggrandizing pseudo-spiritual clowns called the Pharisees. That wasn't his mission. Oh, you know, Jesus, you know, argue with these guys. You beat them every time. It'll, you know, it'll be fun. We'll, we'll pop some popcorn. We'll watch the debate. That wasn't what Jesus was here to do, argue with religious people. That's why he withdrew himself, because he knew what the Father's will was for his life. I want to say some things about this. Withdrawing ourselves from conflict, got to hear this this morning, Withdrawing ourselves from conflict is not weakness. It's not cowardice. And it's not admitting defeat. It's very often the wisdom that preserves our peace. You got to hear that this morning. You don't have to get in there. You don't have to fight with everybody who wants to fight with you. You don't have to argue with everybody who wants to argue with you. The Bible says a soft answer turns away wrath. Some of us are escalators. We need to be de-escalators. Right? You say, I, I could fight at the drop of a hat, and most of the times I drop the hat myself. Stop that. Jesus didn't do that. It wasn't part of his mission. Many times we lose our peace. Why? Because we're involved in conflicts we should never be in. How many times have you had an argument with somebody, and you, days later you are still torqued about what they said? Some of you are trying to look so holy this morning. Come on. You know what I'm saying? Like you just get into an argument with somebody and they, and they say stuff. Man, people say stuff and it hangs over your life like a cloud. And three days later, you're still, you're in the garage mumbling to yourself. Some of us are too slow. Like three days later, we came up with a good rebuttal. I should have said this. Right? What? Yeah. All the slow people clapping. Amen. You know, on the way home, ah, I should have said that. No, you and I should have avoided that conflict. Why? Because now it's robbed our peace. You're still mumbling three days later. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus knew what he was there for, and it wasn't to argue with these clowns. You say, well, that's disrespectful. Yeah, I'm being disrespectful. They were clowns. They didn't have the heart of God. They didn't have the love of God. They were rule keepers. They were nitpickers. They were petty. And Jesus said, enough, I'm out, and he withdraws himself. That's not admitting defeat. It's not being a coward. It's what preserves our peace. Now, Jesus successfully breaks contact with the Pharisees in verse 15 here, but he's unable to elude the crowd. Look what it says here. Look, and a great multitude followed him. So those guys go off to wherever they go off to the Pharisees' bat cave or whatever to plan how to get Jesus. You know, they're just like, we're going to kill him. We're going to get him. We're going to trick him, trap him. Jesus is like, I'm out of here. And the crowds follow Jesus. That, that's something to say, isn't it right? They didn't follow the, the leaders, the, the religious. No, they followed Jesus and a huge crowd. Now, Jesus never purposely drew large crowds to himself. That wasn't his mission. 
Yet I want you to see something here. It says, you know, and a great multitude followed him. Listen, and he healed them all. This is powerful this morning. It's so powerful. Uh, you say, what's going on here? Well, he eludes the Pharisees, but the crowds follow him. Now, he didn't want the crowd. He didn't call the crowd to himself. He didn't desire crowds, but he heals them. He doesn't turn them away. He doesn't drive them away. He doesn't even slip away from them. Instead, he heals them all. Now, this reminds me of the time when Mary, Jesus, you know, was at the wedding feast, and Mary comes to Jesus. We preach through this miracle. They have no wine. And what does Jesus say? Woman, what does this have to do with me? It's not my time. It's not time for miracles. Come on, Mom. But yet, even though it wasn't Jesus' time, and even though Jesus makes it clear that, you know, this isn't something that he, he thought of, he, he performs that miracle, and he changes water into wine. You say, why did he do that? Why didn't he just tell Mary, no, it's not time. Leave me alone. He did it out of grace and compassion. Why doesn't he turn this crowd of multitudes away? Because he has grace and compassion for mankind. Do you see the love that he has? I want you to get this this morning. Jesus doesn't turn anyone away. He doesn't disperse the crowd. He doesn't slip away. No, he has love and he has compassion and he has great mercy towards us. We've got to get this this morning, amen? Some of us are walking around like, you know, well, God doesn't want to be bothered or Jesus got enough to do or, you know, uh, you know I, I don't want to ask him because, you know, I did it before and I'll do it again and I, I just feel like a hypocrite. No, God is not mad at us. He's not dispersing us. He's calling us close to him. R.A. Torrey in his book, Anecdotes and illustrations shares the story of a little girl who wanted to love Jesus but couldn't seem to do it. A little girl came to her pastor and said, Pastor, I don't love Jesus like I should, and I wish you would show me how to love him. The pastor said to the little girl, As you go away from here today, keep saying to yourself, Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. And by the time you come back next Sunday, you'll be able to say, I love Jesus. The next Sunday came, and the little girl burst into the church with a radiant look on her face. And she said, Pastor, when I left on Sunday, I kept saying what you told me to say over and over again. Jesus loved me. And after just a short while, I began to think of him hanging on the cross, dying just for me. And my heart began to grow warm, and soon I was able to say, I love Jesus. You see, we love him because he first loved us. Not because we're good people, not because we're smart, not because, you know, we're the cream of the crop or we came to the right spiritual conclusions. We love him because he first loved us. He's full of compassion. He's full of mercy. His arms are open to you today, and he's calling you close, close, that he would draw you in and wrap his arms around you and answer the questions of your heart. I love the fact that it says here he healed them all. He healed them all. It wasn't like a whole crowd came up and he prayed, some of them got healed, and some of them went away in wheelchairs. Nope, he healed them all. And you know what that says to me? That healing, restoration, the love of God is for everybody. It's for everybody. And when God pours it out, nobody's left out. Man, it feels bad to be left out. But the kingdom of God is being established here, and the healing mercy of God is being poured out, and he heals 
Every one of them. It's such a beautiful thing to see that, you know, it's for everybody. And, you know, many times we think, well, it's for you, Pastor. It's for my spouse. It's for this person here, but it's not for me. Does the enemy lie to you like that? Does he tell you, well, it's not for you, you're disqualified, or you're not really part of the group, or, you know, you've done too many things to expect God to do anything for you, you and he lies. And I want to I tell you something today, that is not the truth. Healing, mercy, restoration, love, joy, fulfillment, purpose, it's all for you, for every single one of you, and even for me too. Jesus leaves no one out. He healed them all. Do you need healing today? Jesus will heal you. You say, well, when will he do it? Right away? Will he do it now? Will he do it instantly? I don't know, but he'll heal you. If you cry out to him and you bring your need before him, he won't disperse you. He won't chase you away. He he won't slip away. He'll meet your need. He'll hear your prayer, and he'll bring restoration to you. He healed them all. I love the fact that this whole issue was born out of the Pharisees' Uh, question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Well, heaven answers that question by pouring out a tidal wave of healing on the Sabbath that left no one out. Amen. I love it. I would love to see the faces of these guys after they heard the reports. Yeah, after he made you look stupid, man, he healed everybody. I love it. Nobody left out. Everybody? Yeah, he healed everybody. Nobody limped away? No, nobody limped away. Verse 16 shows how focused Jesus was on his divine mission. Look look what it says here. Yet he warned them not to make him known. Every time, Jesus does this a lot. He casts demons out, and he's like, shh, don't say anything. Don't make me known. He heals somebody, opens blind eyes. He's like, don't tell anyone. You know, and it's kind of like, come on, Jesus, are you kidding me with this? These people can't keep this quiet. You know, it's kind of like when you're a parent and you have little kids and you tell them not to do something, and you know they're going to do it. You know, sometimes they don't even wait for you to be out of the room to do it. And, and, and he's saying, don't make me known. Are you kidding? You just made, I mean, everybody's healed. It's a miracle crusade here. You know, it's a public thing. Everybody saw it. How could we not make, you know, what's the point of this here? You know, Jesus is basically telling them, yeah, just keep a lid on what happened here today. And I want you to know, it's not because Jesus is a recluse or a hermit or he was perpetually annoyed with all these people thronging him with all their physical needs. No, he just knew that the signs and the wonders and the miracles could become a distraction to him doing the Father's will. And he was so on point, so focused with doing the Father's will that he wasn't willing to even entertain that. It wasn't what he was there for. On the other side of the cross, healing would be poured out uh, upon everyone, amen? But, but he was there, what? To accomplish his mission, to go to the cross, to go into the tomb, to raise on the third day, to break the power of sin. All of these things was what he focused on. And we need to learn something from this. We need to know what we're called to do and focus on doing it. I, I said something in the first service. I said, when you do the things that you should be doing, you don't have time to do the things you shouldn't be doing. I need to hear that again. When you do, if I can say it again, it, when, you, <laughs> when you do the things that you should be doing, you don't have time to do the things you shouldn't be doing. 
Why do we have so much time to do the things we shouldn't be doing that get us in trouble and wind us up in sin? Because we don't use our time properly. We don't use our discernment properly. Jesus was focused on his mission, razor focused, yet out of his compassion, he heals all these people, but he says, you know what? Keep a lid on it, guys. Good luck with that, Jesus. Verse 17 shifts gears a little bit as we segue into a fulfillment of Isaiah's messianic prophecy. Understand, the Old Testament prophets had said things about the coming Messiah, about what he would do, what he would be like, the exploits he would do. The predictive prophecy is so meticulous and accurate, and the fulfillment of it is seen in the New Testament that thousands of years ago, Isaiah writes this, and we see it fulfilled in Jesus in verse 12. In fact, if you're taking notes today, I want you to write down Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. I'm going to read you Isaiah 42, 1 through 4, and you're going to see that what Isaiah said centuries before is now being fulfilled by Jesus in verse 12 here of the book of Matthew. Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom I, my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will cry out. He will not cry out nor raise his voice nor make his voice heard in the streets. A bent reed he will not break off. A dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring justice forth. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice on the earth and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. So there's Isaiah, you know, hundreds of years prior, saying what Jesus would do. And here's Jesus fulfilling it in uh, Matthew chapter 12. Now, there's also fulfillments of Isaiah 11, 2, and 3, Isaiah 53, 10, and Isaiah 40, 11 in these verses here. We see little things. Jesus is just doing his thing, and little by little, he's knocking off and fulfilling the prophecies as he follows the, the steps the Holy Spirit's laid out. Now, first thing it says in verse 18 is that the Father is well-pleased with him. Amen. How many would say, I, I want the Father to be able to say about me, I'm well-pleased with you. Amen. You know, only like 20 people raise their hand. We all want to please the Father. Amen. We all want to hear, well done, good and faithful service. Some of us are shy this morning, but, you know, we all want that. And the thing that is said here in verse 18 is that, behold, my servant whom I've chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. What a beautiful expression of the father there. You, you know, and understand that the first thing he says, he's well pleased with his son. What is he pleased with? He's pleased with his obedience, his sacrifice, and his conduct. You know, our heavenly father will always love us, but sometimes he's not pleased with us. We got to hear this. You know, some people treat God like, you know, he's just always, you know, he's always for us, always happy, always, no matter what we do, he's just like, oh, that's okay. You know, kind of like our, this millennial generation disciplines their children. You're out at the restaurant, you got some kid throwing soda around, kicking people, pulling food off of other people's tables, and the parents are, isn't he cute? No, he's not cute. I'm going to fit him in my drinking glass if you don't take care of him. It's not cute. Undisciplined children are not cute. 
Sometimes God looks and we're not obedient. Sometimes God looks and we, you know, we don't want to make the sacrifice. And sometimes our behavior and our conduct is unbecoming of a Christian and God is not pleased. Now, I know this kind of preaching doesn't fill seats. But it's got to be said anyway. There's been times in my life where I could feel that the Father was displeased with my conduct. Oh, no, Pastor, that wasn't God. That was the devil. No, it wasn't. I was acting like the devil, and my Father in heaven was saying, I'm not happy with that, son. I could feel the Holy Spirit withdraw from me. What a feeling that is. I could feel conviction from heaven. And I had only one recourse to acknowledge my sin and repent. I could pretend I didn't feel it. I didn't do it. I could just say, ah, and you know what? I would go on for days until I got right with God. Now, hopefully me sharing that experience, you're saying, well, we've been praying for you, Pastor. We, we, we hope you get it together soon because we've about had it with you too. I'm sharing that because it's something that we should all understand. God can, you know, not be, he loves us. He's for us. He's, he's plotting our comeback, but he's not, you know, he looks at our conduct and our attitude and, our, and how we willfully sin and the things we put in our bodies and the attitudes we have and, and the things we do that contradict his word, and he's not pleased. Oh. He was pleased with Jesus' obedience sacrifice in his conduct. And God, I pray that each of us would strive to be obedient and to be willing to make the sacrifices for the kingdom that are necessary and that our conduct would please you. Notice Jesus is described here as a servant. And that's important. Behold my servant. He didn't say, behold my prince, behold the king, behold the, the, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold Jesus who has the name above every name. No, he describes him what? As a servant. Jesus didn't come to be served, but to serve. And even though he was fully God, when he took the flesh on and was born of a virgin, he submitted himself to the Father's will and to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because he had to contend with the flesh. Understand, Jesus' flesh was real flesh. It wasn't like flesh light or flesh junior or just, you know, just, you know, just an outward. No, it had the capacity to sin. If Jesus didn't have the capacity to sin and appease his flesh, then him living a sinless life would mean nothing, and his death on the cross would not break the power of sin. Powerful this morning is good theology uh, to understand that Jesus had flesh on. So what did he do? Though he was fully God, he was fully man, he submitted himself to the Father, and the Father sees him as a servant, an obedient service, a sacrificial servant, a servant conducting himself in a way that pleased the Father. What a perfect example for us to submit totally to the Father, to submit totally to the leading of the Holy Spirit. You know, you and I didn't get saved and forgiven and filled with the Holy Spirit and given the gift of eternal life so now we could just do our own thing. We're servants. We've been bought with a price. Well, pastor, I just do my own thing. You know, I do this, I do that, I do what feels good. You know, and it's all under God's grace. What a reckless way to live. What a dangerous way to live. Hmm, not good. 
but yet our independence needs to be swallowed up in our dependence in him. You know, uh, Paul said, you know, over and over again that, you know, our life has been exchanged. The life I now live, I I live in Christ who loved me and gave himself for me. Amen. I don't do my own thing. So many Christians in the body of Christ, well, pastor, you got to follow God. You got to do what you're told. You got to stay here in New York and stand till the snow buries you alive. We're just going to do what we want. We're going to move here. We're going to go there. We're going to marry this person. We're going to run off and do this. And God didn't tell you to do it. But it's a spirit of independence. I can't tell how many times. Look, if God moves you, if God speaks to you, fine. Praise God. But 90% of the time I'm looking at people's lips are moving. I'm going, that, that ain't the Holy Ghost. That's not what God said. You're doing your own thing. And then when you get there, you wonder why it's hard. It doesn't fit. You can't find a place to worship. You got no friends. You got no purpose. Why? Because you're out doing your own thing. Stop doing your own thing and start doing his thing. Amen. Be an obedient servant. Well, I don't know what to do, so I just did what came naturally. No, don't do anything. In the Old Testament, they were led by the cloud. If the cloud didn't move, they didn't move. If the cloud moved, they moved. They didn't just get in front of the cloud and go, come on, cloud. We're going to where it's warmer. Come on, cloud. I want to be a snowbird, amen? My driveway's like a skating rink right now. I'm going to slide all the way to Texas. I get it. I get it but I never want to be out of God's will. And you shouldn't either. He's a servant. Look what he says. I'll put my spirit on him. All the miracles, all the signs and wonders. Everybody healed. That's the Holy Ghost, amen. I'll put my spirit on him. And listen to this. He will declare justice to the Gentiles. What does that mean? Well, it means two things. Number one, the Gentiles worshiped idols, they practiced sin, they rejected the one true God, and Jesus was about to come to them and bring the gospel to them, and they would be convicted about the injustice of their own wicked ways. You see, up until this point, God didn't bother with the Gentiles. They were just lost and crazy and out of control and persecuting Israel, his people. But now on the other side of the cross, God brings justice to them. What is that? The justice comes in the form of the gospel that brings the conviction of sin. Now crazy Gentiles who've been, you know, out there practicing sin and doing it well, you know, enthusiastically are now convicted and they come to Jesus and they're born again and they become part of the family of God. That's the justice of God that he brings to the Gentile. Also, it's justice in the sense where not only does the gospel convict us of sin, but it's justice in the sense that now salvation is available to everybody. Think about it. If you were, you, you, you and I are blessed to be born in the United States of America, where there's a church in every corner, where the gospel is on TV and radio, where we can hear the gospel, we can go to church, we can worship freely. Anybody thankful for that? Amen. It's a blessing, and it comes at a cost. And we need to remember there's a cost to be paid for that freedom. But what if you were born in India? What if you were born in China? What if you were born in some Muslim country, you know, and and you didn't even have a chance to hear the gospel? In fact, if you heard the gospel and responded to it, it could cost you your life. Is that justice? There was no hope for the Gentiles. They were born lost, and they died lost. 
But that wasn't good with the father. He, he saw it as injustice. So what does he do? He extends the gospel through Jesus Christ, not just to the Jews, his chosen people, but to whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord now that they could be saved. That's the justice of God. That's the justice of God. Mercy. Oh, I'm so excited about the fact that anybody can be saved. Oh, you say, well, not that person. They're really bad. Oh, especially them, amen. I know a guy who was, you know, going to Damascus to get papers to kill Christians, and God came down and knocked him on his backside and closed his eyes, and he called him Saul, but he raised him up Paul, and he made him the greatest apostle that ever lived that wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. Come on. My God specializes in people who are broken and messed up. Sometimes I think God just showing off. He likes to take the person everybody wrote off. You know, that, that, oh, they'll never amount to anything. He likes to take that kid, the last kid picked for kickball. And when you're the last one picked for kickball, you, you're bad at sports. Takes that guy and says, watch what I could do. Watch what I could do with this guy here, this self-righteous Pharisee who's killing Christians, who, who's persecuting the church. Watch what I can do. Ha. <laughs> justice to the Gentiles, the conviction of sin, the, the offer of eternal life to whosoever would call upon the name of the Lord. That's justice in the eyes of God. Verse 19, uh, Isaiah prophesies about how the Messiah, Jesus, would conduct himself when he came. Look what it says here. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. What does this mean? Uh, it means, number one, Jesus, when he came, as the Messiah, he didn't waste much time trying to justify himself in the eyes of man. Look what it says here. He wouldn't quarrel or cry out. What does that mean? He wasn't going to debate with the religious elites. He wasn't going to debate with those lost in, you know, worshiping idols and try to prove himself or elevate himself or to get everybody to accept who he was. The Bible says he came and his own received him not. Not even the people who were studying the scriptures looking for the Messiah. When he showed up, they were like, nah, this ain't the guy. Rejected by men, despised by men, rejected by his own people. Yet he comes to earth uh, and, 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 and he just, you know, he doesn't try to promote himself. He doesn't quarrel or cry out or try to prove himself or win the favor of men. Why? Because he knew he didn't need the favor of men to do the will of his father. And neither do you, and neither do I. Why do we quarrel to prove our point? Why do we quarrel to prove ourselves intellectually, spiritually, more superior than others? Why do we quarrel to appease our own egos, to silence our detractors? All of that is rooted in pride. Why didn't Jesus argue? He had no pride. Our greatest prayer should be, God, deliver me from pride. You know, pride is the only thing that ever got anyone kicked out of heaven, Satan swelled up with pride. And Jesus said, I saw him fall like lightning from the sky. He said, I'll be like the most high. I'll be like God. And boom, he was gone, cast out of the heavens into the atmospheric realm of the earth here to, to hassle us <laughs> until Jesus takes us home. Understand something today. Jesus didn't come to win the favor of men. He, he didn't care about his approval rating. He didn't care about the polls. He came to do the Father's will. 
We got to stop quarreling because it's rooted in pride. We don't have to prove ourselves to anyone. We just have to do the will of him who sent us. Number two, the second thing you need to spot here about uh, Isaiah's prophecy of how the Messiah would conduct himself, it says here, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. What's that all about? It's to show that when the promised Messiah came, he wouldn't be showy, he wouldn't be a loud mouth, and he wouldn't be an attention seeker. Isn't that Jesus perfectly? Didn't want the crowds, didn't try to draw people to himself. Just selected 12 people, not even great people. Bunch of knuckleheads. One of them was stealing from him. Judas was, you know, there for the wrong reasons. Peter only took his foot out of his mouth to change feet. Nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Jesus was meek. He was mild, humble. He came as the Lamb of God. He wasn't an attention seeker. He wasn't a red carpet celebrity. That was not who he was. We live in a world that is self-aggrandizing, attention seekers. Look at me, notice me, watch me, look at my page, look at my picture, look at my video, ha, ha, ha. How many likes did I get? The world is all about self-promotion. You know, and some, some of that's crept into the church, and we've got churches and ministers and people that just promote themselves. You know, you can promote yourself all you want, and it'll accomplish nothing. If God's not for you, if God's not with you, if God's not behind what you're doing, and you're doing your own thing, it'll fail. On the TV, on the radio, oh, if you don't give your tax-deductible donation, we're going to go off the air. Please, go off the air. Please, go away. Why? Because God finances, God provides for, God establishes his will in the lives of men, in the church, amen? We don't have to justify ourselves. We don't have to grab attention. We don't have to rebrand ourselves. Get a new suit, polish the shoes, cap your teeth. That's the world. That wasn't Jesus, meek and mild and quiet. 12 common fishermen, tax collectors. The, you know, he just chose 12 guys, and one of them was a devil, and the rest of them you know, stuck with him, and he used them, and he turned the world upside down. And he didn't make a lot of noise. He just did the Father's will. Oh, the lesson for us in there, amen. Stop trying to establish yourself. Stop trying to promote yourself. Stop trying to make people like you. This is going to help somebody this morning, amen. This is going to set you free. Stop, you don't have, it doesn't matter what people's opinion of. Now, don't be a jerk. Some people are like, well, you know, people don't like me because I'm so spiritual. No, that's not it. <laughs> I'm just being real on Sunday morning here, amen. Sometimes people don't like us because we're, we don't have to promote ourselves we don't have to lift ourselves up we don't need attention Jesus understood he didn't have to quarrel cry out, argue he didn't have to yell in the streets and attract crowds to himself just did the Father's will. Verse 20, Isaiah gives us a glimpse into the heart Jesus had toward the lost. This interesting verse here. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench. 
There's some interesting imagery in there. What's that about a bruised reed and a smoking flax? They are images of two things on their threshold of losing their value. You see, a reed strength is in that can, a reed is like a stalk, a plant, maybe like bamboo or some type of plant, a stalk that grows straight and tall and strong, and it can be used for things that can support crops, whatever. But once a, a reed is bruised and it begins to wilt or break, it loses its value. If you ever took a corn stalk, you know, and maybe, uh, you know, you, you, you hit, dent one side of it and it starts to wilt. Or how many, you know, at Christmas time when the, the presents were being wrapped, you used to get those cardboard tubes from the paper and you used to fight with them? Come on, how many? Don't look at me like that. My, my brother and I had epic wars with those things. And what, what would happen? Once it breaks a little bit, the whole thing just goes. That's a bruised reed. And once it's bruised, once it breaks, once it's got that, that little dent in it, it can't be made straight again. It's lost its value. I remember when, one time when, when I was at Bible school and I was dating Kim, uh, you know, I was uncivilized savage back then. She's worked on me for decades. I now eat with utensils and wear matching clothes. But I wanted to give her flowers. And so I bought some carnations, and I was so excited to give them to her, I ran up the hill to give them to her, and I tripped, and I broke them, and I hit the, 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 the flowers, got dented on the one side, and they all went. And that's a bruised reed. I tried to straighten it out. I tried to fix it. I wrapped it a little tighter. Nothing. I gave them to her. She still married me, and then I found out she didn't like carnations. But <laughs> a bruised reed. What about a smoking flax? That's a, you know, flax would be used as a fire starter to start bigger fires. So if a, if a flax isn't wicking, if it's not burning, if it's just smoldering, it's useless. This is a description of things that are in danger of losing their value. And look what it says here. You know, a bruised reed, he will not break. A smoking flax, he will not quench. Jesus does not give up on people because they're struggling. Jesus doesn't give up on people because they're broken. Jesus didn't give up on people because they've lost their value. He restores them. He takes them and he makes them new again. Amen. I love that. No, well, I'm damaged goods. Well, Jesus didn't say, well, I can't use you then. I can only use the best of the best. Look around. Look around. He don't use the best of the best. He takes the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Amen. Know how I got my position. A reed's strength is that it can stand tall and strong. A flax's strength is that it can ignite and burn bigger fires. doesn't matter if you're damaged today. doesn't matter if you're struggling today. doesn't matter if the whole world sees you as a failure. God can use you. He can mend you. He can help you. He can restore you. The last part of verse 20 and verse 21, we bring it in for a landing here today. Verse 20b into 21, it says, till he sends forth justice to victory. What does that mean? It assures us that the Messiah will accomplish his mission. Jesus accomplished his mission when he came to earth. He did exactly what the Father called him to do. He didn't waste his time arguing with people, trying to justify himself, win popularity contests, have good opinion polls. He came, he died, he rose, he broke the power of sin, and he offers salvation to anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. 
till he sends forth justice to victory. Yes, he's victorious. He's overcome. He's made an open display of the enemy in the streets. He's took the keys of death, hell, and the grave, and his name is above every name forevermore. Verse 21 concludes Isaiah's prophecy by saying, and in his name the Gentiles will trust. You say, well, how is that fulfilled by you and I today? The, the church is filled with Gentiles who have brought into covenant relationship by the blood of Jesus Christ. You and I are part of the family of God, children of God, joint heirs with Christ, all because of what Jesus has done. No longer are we estranged, cut off from God, hopeless in the world, but now we are children of God. And it's all because of what the cross has done. And it says, in his name, the Gentiles will trust and we trust you today, Lord Jesus, and we're thankful for the cross, and we're thankful for what you've done for us. Let's bow our heads. Father, I thank you today for Matthew 12. I thank you today for Jesus modeling uh, things of wisdom for us, how to withdraw ourselves from conflicts and not waste our time uh, arguing with people. I pray for anyone out there who, who wants to be, you know, justify themselves or wants everybody to like them or feels like they have to fight every time somebody wants to start a fight. God, deliver us from that. Give us wisdom, Lord, so that we can withdraw from that foolishness and preserve our peace. So we wouldn't walk into ambushes that would sidetrack our lives and derail our destinies, but that we would stay on the path of your perfect will for our lives. Our job is to do your will, to accomplish our mission. And we are so thankful for Jesus as an example, to be servants, to strip ourselves of pride, to look for your leading in all things, not to do our own thing, but to learn to do your thing, I pray.